Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, where we will explore the local arts culture and community in the Lehigh Valley. We'll be doing this through conversations with individual artists, administrators, and organizations. We'll discuss all types of mediums with the goal of enriching local arts culture. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben. Welcome back to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast. I am joined today by our first guest host, and that's Keith Garuba. Hi, I'm thrilled to be here, Ben. Thank you so much for inviting me back. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to recently. Oh, man, I've been having a really fun year. Um, Well, I guess uh, when you had me last as a guest, I was kind of gearing up to get into um, a couple of shows I had over the summer. And uh, one of those shows was with the International Print Center of New York. And that show came with a special perk for me. I I was honored to be offered uh, an artist in residence relationship with them to coincide with that show that was over the summer, their new Prince show. Ben, you have special insight into what I've had going on because you yes, and I, I do. have worked together. Uh, <laughs> I've uh, been documenting that project for you. Exactly. We've been which having a good time. We were having a good time and I, I was so thrilled to have you with me. Uh, but also, um, you were a great creative sounding board and and uh, and brought a great energy to the whole thing. So oh, thank, thank you. you for accompanying me. Yeah, of Um, course. But I've been working on on that artist in residency um, project that they funded. It was a remote one. Totally. Totally. Uh, Yeah. For for those that may be unfamiliar, what does a residency in place mean? In an artist's career, uh, they might seek a residency, which is kind of like a... Mm, and usually they're, they're framed as an opportunity to isolate yourself and really dive into your artwork or mm. connect with a community of artists and, and dive in with them and reconnect and find new avenues to be creative. And so often it involves going somewhere, removing yourself from the normal flow of your life. Totally. But because of pandemic, many places that continued offering residencies offered what they called uh residency in place or remote residencies and uh that what that entailed in my case was carrying out a project in my own space uh not going to new york where their location is and um you know they they accommodated me in as many ways as they 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 could uh very cool as much you know they tried to make it as regular as they possibly could and so they they funded a project and they gave me some marketing and publicity but they also hooked me up in certain ways actually just this past week i had a meeting with uh kevin petrie who is the man who wrote the book uh glass and print that i learned how to make my artwork through Oh, that's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So I first found out about him 12 years ago when I first learned this process. And um, through this residency, they were able to uh, connect me to him. So there's been these little perks. Uh, totally. Yeah. Totally. Find more information about the project that you're working on with IPCNY. Um, you did a video about that recently, right? I did. Yeah. We we made a, a video. It's an it, it was an Instagram live event. And it's now 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 it exists on uh, IPCNY's account under their IGTV, and it was a studio visit, a live studio visit, about an hour long, where I had people come and uh, and uh, sort of drop into my studio with me, and I tried to introduce them to the project I was working on, and also my general working space. Yeah, and so that can be found on IPCNY's account. That's I believe at IPCNY, but also you can keep up with all the things that I have going on. Totally. My account uh, at Keith.Garuba on Instagram. Awesome. You've been posting a lot. A lot recently. Well, you know, I I've been I, I've been sort of like having a lot of fun, um, just exploring my voice on there. Totally. And, uh, you know, the the funny thing is, uh, 
when when you're crafting an artist's statement, it's kind of uh, scary, right? But one thing I've really been embracing on on Instagram is like, oh, I have like just as many shots as I want at crafting totally. all kinds of statements. Totally, <laughs> totally. That's how I've been treating it. Yeah, your your writing ability and your narrative style on there is amazing. Uh, I love reading it. It's so much fun. It's so different from what everybody else is doing, and it it's definitely a a, a unique take on on everything. Thank you so much. That You're means very a lot. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> For those listening, Keith is here uh, to guest host with me. And um, we have a very exciting guest on today. Keith, who is our guest today? Dominic Nakarado. Uh, Dom is uh, a really cool guy. I mean, first, uh, thank you for having me back to 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 co-host this episode. Of course, because it was so much fun, and and when you invited me back, it was a no-brainer to say yes to because I have so much fun with you guys. But it was <laughs> also um, I, I was thrilled to to to. Um, to be able to do an episode with Dom because I just totally. love his work. And, um, he's a, he's an artist. I know first, uh, by being involved with him in the Lehigh art Alliance. Yeah. And, uh, he, he makes these really cool kind of assemblage paintings. Um, yeah, I was thrilled to, to speak with him. Totally. Totally. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read his bio and then we'll get right into our interview. Dominic Nacarado began his professional career in 1998 after receiving his BFA in Fine Art from the College of New Jersey. He has spent time wearing several different hats over the past two decades, including that of a web designer, web developer, graphic designer, creative director, marketing manager, and product manager. The single role that has been the common thread behind all of this is that of artist. Nakarado moonlights out of his basement workshop and studio, producing art that has been exhibited in and around the Lehigh Valley for the past nine years. His style has been described as contemporary industrial, and he is regularly exhibited in seasonal shows at Connections Gallery in Easton, PA, has exhibited at Bethlehem House Gallery in Bethlehem, PA, and has also been included in a number of solo, curated, and juried shows throughout the Valley. He currently sits on the board of the Lehigh Art Alliance and is a member of the arts community of Easton. Nakarado resides in Lower Makunji with his wife and two teenage daughters. Dom, so I first know you from our interactions at the Lehigh Art Alliance. Yeah. Right. How long have you been involved with the LAA? Oh, probably probably maybe a little bit longer than I've known you. Um, I joined a number of years ago um, as a way of just sort of trying to meet new people within the art community um, throughout Lehigh Valley. Um, I also knew, you know, that they put on annual Druid show. So I saw it as an opportunity to start showing my work again. Um, cause prior to joining the Lehigh Airlines, I mean, honestly, I, I think I had been living under a rock because I had no idea the extent and the breadth of the art community here in the Valley. It's extensive. It seriously is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, joining the LLA was, you know, one of those things that sort of, it was like a gateway drug, right? It just opened you up to all these other opportunities. And, you know, from there I started meeting, you know, I started meeting guys like you. I started meeting other friends within the community. They introduced me to, you know, other gallery owners and, and folks doing things, um, creating shows and stuff like that. And so, yeah, so I've been a member ever since. Yeah. What has your role specifically with them looked like? 
So I, um, when I started, I was just, you know, just a member. Um, I have helped them out over the years uh, with things like uh, maintaining their website, um, doing a little bit of the social media. I don't really do any of those things anymore. Uh, most recently, I've just helped them raise some money um, to put toward uh, the different projects that they have uh, throughout the community. Um, we have, um, we have now uh, an annual set of scholarships that we offer to high school students, graduating seniors, you know, going into a career in art, going to school, that kind of thing. Um, and, um, you know, putting towards things like, uh, the Mays public library and the workshops that they're putting on over there and stuff like that. Very cool. It's funny how getting to know someone can be so, uh, context based. So I think of you through that first. Oh, do you really? Yeah. That's but funny. of course you're a whole artist with a whole history before that. Um, so, uh, I, I'm curious to hear about your artistic journey, um, how you began, uh, how you got into what you do. Sure. Sure. Um, I, well, I, like you've probably heard before, my, my mom always say that she knew I was going to be an artist the first time I ever picked up a crayon. Um, I, as far as long back as I can remember, I was always interested in making things, drawing things, even painting things. Um, I can remember having like a sketchbook and walking around my house as a kid and just drawing like whatever the random things were on the wall um, that my parents, you know, had as their decor, right? Um, Whether it was like another painting on the wall or like a clock or something. And... um, you know, so I was always that sort of creative kid, um, you know, in school, you know, you, you know, the art teacher, you know, gives you the project and, you know, and you go do this thing. And like, I'm, I'm the one sitting on the side, like, you know, I don't know, making it like somehow unique and different than everybody else. Totally. Um, and that just sort of progressed, um, you know, going into high school and stuff. Um, I knew, I knew definitely I wanted to focus on art and um, had a great uh, mentor, uh, art teacher in school um, that sort of helped me, you know, progress along and um, just show me new styles of work, show me, you know, different techniques. And, you know, it was one of the things, it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's almost like an inherent part of me. I don't know what, I don't know what life is like not being an artist, hmm. if that makes sense. Totally. And um, I had, you know, I had I, I, I a set of parents that were very supportive of a kid who wanted to pursue art. Um, you know, my dad would come home with, you know, things of, of acrylic paint so that I could go paint because I was just randomly painting in the basement. He would he would tape and record on old VHS recorder uh, episodes of Bob Ross. Oh, that's awesome. So I could just go play them back anytime I wanted. Totally. You know? Um, And so I, you know, uh, you know, he made me a, he made me my first drafting table. Right. Um, He still has actually in his basement in his house. Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And, you know, it's just one of the things it's like, you know, you have, you have parents that are just completely and utterly supportive of what you're doing. It just makes things a little easier. Totally. You know? And, uh, and then, you know, I, I can remember, I can remember vividly telling my mom one day, I don't know, it was late in high school. I, we just happened to be sitting there in my room. And I, I said to her, it's like, you know, I think I want to pursue a career in art. I don't know what that means, but I want to be an artist. 
And she was like, all right, well, then, you know, we'll, we'll figure out what that means. And so in some part, it meant going to college and doing all that. Um, and so when we started applying for schools and all that, um, you know, it was, it was in pursuit of an art degree. Um, now again, you know, I had, you know, back then, this is like, I don't know, 1993, 1994. I had no idea what that even meant. Um, and, uh, applied to a bunch of schools. I ended up getting in and going to Trenton State College. Nice. Um, now at the time it was still called Trenton State College. Halfway through my four years there, they changed the name to College of New Jersey. Um, and that was quite an experience uh, from being, you know, coming in sort of not really knowing too much about art. I mean, mm. we always, you know, you always go to the field trips. You always go to the, you know, growing up outside of New York City, going into the, like, Metropolitan Museum of Art was like a sure. no-brainer, right? That's what sure. you did for your humanities trips and your art field trips and all that good stuff. Yeah. But I was never really, like, I never really, like, studied art, you know. Um, I knew what I liked. I knew visually what I liked, what I saw. Um, but going to school for art and then being introduced to new people who had their own styles and professors who sort of opened up paths to all kinds of different things. That was, that was a game changer. And, uh, I, you know, that was just, I, I still credit so much of my career as an artist to the four years I spent in college, um, you know, and, and just the opportunity to explore things and experiment and, you know, try, you know, try new things and try new techniques, um, you know, uh, playing with tar. Do you know, do you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I know you follow me and you, you know, you know, the kinds of things that I do, uh -huh. but the first time I ever played with roofing tar was when I was in college. Oh, I was going to ask what kind of media and, you're into and, and what kind of work you were making yeah, all the way back then. You were already kind of, you know, yeah. So even all back then, like, you know, I take a watercolor class, for example, and like, I pushed the limits. I probably pissed off some people doing so because I'm like, <laughs> all right, so watercolor, what does that mean? Well, so here's a piece of paper. Now I'm going to like adhere to a, maybe a piece of wood or something. And I'm not going to really use watercolor <laughs> paint per se, but I'm going to use a whole bunch of stuff that I can stain the paper with using water and liquids. Yeah. It's still kind of watercolor-ish, right? <laughs> you know, and, and pick up a little dirt off the floor and mix it in. It's, it's kind of got a muddy consistency, but it's still water-based, right? So how far can I push the limits here? Yeah. You know, even the mixed media classes that I think I remember that, that was it. It was a mixed media class that, you know, we were doing something. And out in, out in the balcony of one of the classrooms that, I don't know if it was a classroom we were in, but I, I remember the classroom specifically. It had a balcony, and along the railing of the balcony, they had tar on the railing to dissuade the birds from hanging out on the railings and pooping everywhere. And I remember grabbing some of this tar off the railing and smearing it onto the surface of the thing I was working on. And it, and it became a medium in itself. Spectacular, right? yeah. You know, and it's and you're just like, okay, so it's mixed media, right? You told us to use different things, right? Not necessarily traditional. How about roofing tar? Does that count? <laughs> that was that was kind of my that was kind of my mentality. Oh, that's awesome. You, know? you were just kind of experimental in nature. Yeah, yeah, very much so. But I will I I'll tell you that this though. So 
it's a funny story. I remember early on, um, I was in a sculpture studio class. We were were sort of sitting there waiting around for the class to start, the professor to show up. And one of my, you know, one of my colleagues there, one of my, one of the other students came in. I think he was a year older than me. I, I don't, I don't remember exactly what year he was, but he comes in and he, he sits down at the table. Now, mind you, in, in sculpture studio, especially at that time, you're basically just collecting garbage out of, the, out of the trash because that becomes your raw materials to go build whatever it is you're going to build, right? Sure. That was kind of a given, right? Because you've got to, mm-hmm. first of all, you're a poor college kid, so you're not like buying new things, right? Yeah. You're just scavenging for whatever. And he, anyway, he brings in this, I don't know, it was like a 10-inch square piece of wood that had all this like, just nasty, like, it probably had, like, a dozen layers of paint on it, all, like, sort of chipping off and chipping away. It had, like, a, a, a nail head sticking out of the one corner. It had, like, these stains on the back side of it. And he throws it down on the table, sitting in front of me there, and he points to it, and he was like, you see that? I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's art. And, it, and I'm, like, looking at this thing, and I'm looking at him, and it was, like, this... It was like this epiphany. What he what what he saw in that, and the the crevices and the texture of the piece and the just the the the, the just the grittiness. He saw something beautiful in that. And the moment he pointed it out to me, it was like all of a sudden everything changed. Everything. All the work I had been doing previous to that was just like, I was like a different world, a different time. Mm. Everything after that point, I started noticing things. You start noticing like the stain in the corner of the, like the concrete floor walking up the back stairwell going up to the studios, right? And the way that the stain sort of the etching of like starts creating these like textures and these shapes. And then, you you know, you start noticing like, you know, strange things like that, you know, and, and it just, it just took off from there. Everything about my work at that point was more much more, much more abstract in nature, you know, taking a look at like little things and saying, okay, I really like the way that that sort of grid pattern is happening on that curtain, right? That I'm staring at. Yeah. How do I, how do I pull in that grid kind of composition into my work? Right. Or, you know, or like that, or, or, you know, the paint peeling off of an old board that was thrown in the dumpster somewhere. There's something inherently beautiful about that little vignette that I see all the time. Totally. From back then to today. And, and I, I mean, even, you know, parking down the block and walking up here, I'm just, I'm always like looking around and looking, you know, you see these, these random construction signs and like the grit on them and, you know, and like the, the number three is like half cut off because it was just, you know, a, a truck ran over it like the previous week or whatever happened sure, to it. Sure, sure. Those kinds of things like stick out of me all the time now. Yeah. Because of that, that silly little 10 by 10 board that the kid threw on top of the workbench and was like, this random piece of trash, I think that's art. And I was like, I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I see it too now. Wow. What an origin story for your voice. Totally. And it sounds like most of the ingredients for your mature work were you discovered during that time in school. Yeah. I mean, I, it was probably, you know, it was probably halfway through and it just became very freeing. You know, my painting became much more freer. 
I was doing very, I was doing very, like I said, I was, I was, you know, I was watching Bob Ross videos. I was doing like realistic stuff, doing these like surrealistic paintings and stuff. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the nature of abstract art, non-representational, you know, because I'm not, you know, I see these surfaces and stuff. It's not like I'm trying to always recreate them or something, but I'm, I'm taking cues from them in a way, you know, and, uh, it, it just, I don't know, it just it just opened my eyes to something totally different, totally unique, totally something that I had never experienced before. And painting got freer, my sculpture got freer, everything just got looser and and definitely more rewarding, you know. And That's awesome. Yeah. I, I've seen a lot of numbers built into your work as well. Yeah. And I'm curious where the inspiration for the numbers comes from. Same thing. I mean, you know, commuting to work, 476 Northeast Extension has been under construction for like the past 15 years. <laughs> and I think literally since, I, you know, a year after moving to, to from New Jersey to PA, that highway has been under construction. Yeah. And, and half my life has been spent commuting on that road. And, you know, and you're sitting behind these giant trucks and tractor trailers. You can't help but see, at least I can't. I mean, you know, the back of the tractor trailer has like all these like random serial numbers on it, tracking numbers totally. or whatever it is that, you know, that the company is using to track the truck or the, 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 the trailer. And I see those things and I see the font that's used. And I see, again, I see all that grit that's sort of built up over the years. And there's just something beautiful about the way that the, the sort of the water stains are kind of falling off the bolts and, and, and half covering up some of the numbering and the lettering or anything like that. You know, and then even, you know, even things like these like random construction signs going down there, you know, they have like these random set of numbers on it. Those numbers mean something to somebody. I have no idea what the hell they mean, but there's, they stick out at me, you know? Totally. And, uh, and it's just, it's stuff like that. And you can see that all the time. You know, if I live in Lower Kanji and, and, you know, right down in Emmaus, you got the train line that runs through there. And every once in a while, there'll be, you know, a set of train cars just sitting on the tracks. And you drive past those. When you get up close and personal, there is so much beauty in the, the way that some of those boxcars are rusting and, you know, the graffiti and how that's sort of faded over time. Totally. And then, you know, you've got the actual markings of the, the vehicle itself. And, you know, there's just certain aspects of it that I just, I don't know, it's, again, it's like, it's like those little vignettes that I see that are beautiful to me. And so the the numbers that end up appearing yeah. in a lot of my work are kind of a play off of that, um, you know. And uh, I don't even remember, it was probably a, a number of years ago where I started throwing the numerals and letters and stuff like that into the pieces. And it just sort of took off from there. I, uh, I only half joked with you at one point talking to you recently about uh, how spectacular it would be if uh, if you could place one of those number paintings uh, on Sesame Street. <laughs> That's right. I remember <laughs> and that. And be among so many art, art uh, you know, some of art's greatest. Yeah, wouldn't that be funny? That would be great. I think they'd be perfect for it. Um, I have but, to do, I, I have to do like a sequential thing at some point. I've never done like a true sequential set of numbers or letters mm. or anything. Okay. It's, it's typically always random in nature yeah. unless someone's commissioned me to do something specific. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's a date, sometimes it's a year, 
whatever, but nothing ever like that where you'd be like, okay, it makes sense to actually have, you know, say 26 pieces for 26 letters of the alphabet or whatever. Oh, be, yeah. You know, it would be awesome. That would be interesting. But I'm sure people do relate to your uh, paintings in all kinds of ways because of those. They, they yeah. do. And it, you know, it's interesting over the years, you, you meet people when you're showing the, your work and there's something about that number or whatever that strikes them you know, it's a lucky number or it's, again, it's some, you know, it happens to be the, the date that, you know, their child was born or it's their, you know, oh, I've got three kids. It's number three, or, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. It's interesting how those things can resonate with people so well, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, some of the commissions I've done recently have been because of that, um, you know, where it's someone's anniversary and they're celebrating a year or how many years they've been married and they, you know, can you put number 23 into a piece for me or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Sure. So. It's really, it's really interesting though, because in some of your works, um, if you step away from the meaning of each number, the numbers really become pure abstract shape. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. a way. I mean, I have fun with them sometimes where, um, cause the way I, on the bigger pieces, the way that I put the number on the surface is I'll actually project it. So I've, I've got the painting up on an easel in, in the studio. I've got the, the, the letter or the numeral being projected. And I start sort of fooling around with like how close and how far and off to the side that the, the, the board, the surface is from the projection. And you mm -hmm. end up like accidentally kind of coming up with your composition. Totally. Right. Because I, you know, I, I love it when I can, you know, when I see the number sort of cut off on its edges and, and stuff like that. Um, but again, it kind of, again, it, it kind of plays off of some of these things that I see. There was, uh, you know, I had, um, I had a new roof put on my house a couple of years back and the company had a big dumpster in my driveway. And, you know, the, the letters and the markings on the dumpster yeah. were just gorgeous. I mean, I was sitting there like taking pictures of the thing. My neighbors probably thought I was crazy. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like, why is he taking pictures of the dumpster? Sure. <laughs> right? that's, 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 that's like my thought of what their thought is going through their head. But <laughs> no, but anyway, but like you see these like little vignettes and right. And sometimes the vignette, you know, it's not the full number. It's just something, a piece of it maybe, you know, it's, or it's, or because it's literally been peeled off, you only see that aspect of it. Um, totally. You know, there's a, there's a school of graphic design that's like that too. Um, it, I, back in the, like the late nineties, um, I can remember, um, um, you get, uh, my roommates in school used to get, uh, issues of Raygun magazine. Oh yeah. Okay. And, and Raygun had that sort of style and that vibe. Totally. You know, letters half cut off, numbers half cut off, letters oh, yeah. upside down or yeah. reversed, yeah. you know things like that. Yeah. It's very sci-fi dystopian. Yeah. 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 There's a grunginess to it too that totally, that I love. Totally. That's, that's how some of the, um, some of my, my recent, uh, pieces, those number word vignettes, uh, where I've, I'm kind of combining the number with the actual, like the actual word itself of the number, mm -hmm. just putting them into like interesting, fun compositions where yeah. half is getting cut off or, or, or it's like, you know, a piece of it is upside down or sideways. Yeah. Just fooling around with the composition is, is, was actually a lot of fun doing that little project. Well, I find those really interesting too, because, because I mean, in this modern life we have, we're kind of like being shouted at by all of these signs and symbols everywhere we look and yeah. numbers do that. But in your, 
paintings, the numbers kind of fray at the edges into uh, just visual phenomena in a way if you allow your mind to go there. But when you have the words there reaffirming the meaning of the number, now there's a push and a pull that I think is really fascinating. That's funny. That's an interesting way of putting it, that push and the pull. Yeah. Yeah, those things, those were interesting uh, to do. That project actually started in Photoshop. So, yeah, just taking taking those numbers, the words, and just throwing them around, almost like using it as a sketchbook in a way. Totally. Right? Trying to find an interesting layout for that particular number. And then using that as sort of my foundation and bringing it to life in, in, the, in the finished piece. And they're small. They're only like like yay big, maybe, I don't know, 11 by 11, something like that. Okay. Yeah, cool. That is super cool. I love hearing you talk about your process and um, how these things are made. And I love keeping up with you online and seeing the (laughs) videos that you make because they're so informative and they bring the making of these things so much to life. You're you're good at capturing how it's done. But what what I I find almost a little bit funny and ironic is that – you seem to be very craft-minded. I could tell that you really care about how something is made correctly and you want something to be done well. And then you end up with a product that has so much of this aging and weatheredness and raw delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would love to hear you talk about maybe uh, where you define that line between like where you're able to break yourself away from, okay, now I'm doing something really tight and well and now I want it to have this kind of a texture and finish that's yeah there's uh that's an interesting question too there's a there's definitely a fine line between that sort of grunginess that I end with versus the sort of the composition that I typically start with um and the uh, the process of getting there is is interesting because a lot of it has to do with the sort of the, the techniques of the materials that I'm using to sort of build up the surface and and then start playing around with like objects maybe or a piece of metal or whatever it might be right like I'm staring at the piece behind behind Ben right here yeah that we're looked that I brought in um, using that as a reference you know so most of my stuff I, are are hard surfaces right it's a it's typically like a plywood surface. So that lets me, you know, obviously that lets me beat on it, lets me um, screw into it, lets me cut into it. Uh, Okay, right. So easy enough. Um, From there, you know, after priming the surface and whatnot, I usually put on, not always, but I usually put on a layer of joint compound. That that joint compound um, gives me almost like right away, gives me that sort of layer of texture um, I'll do like a, I'll do sort of like a knockdown texture technique. You see it in like, you know, nice fancy plaster walls or ceilings or something like that. Um, but that like just, it's like instant texture, right? That, that joint compound, that layer there. Um, but sometimes like what I'll do is I'll, I'll embed a wire or a, a fabric mesh in the compound to give me that extra depth. It's, it's also not, it's also a, um, a structural component too, because it just gives extra rigidity to that plaster surface. Um, but from there, you know, I haven't like, I might have a composition in mind, right? But that's kind of like one of the first steps in the sequence where it's almost automatic. Like I, I do that almost no matter what, right? When I start a piece. Um, but after that, 
after that, that's when things start just happening sometimes spontaneously. Um, you know, I have a certain, dare I say, color palette that I tend to stick with. Um, I don't know if that's by design. I don't know if that's by accident. I mean, half the colors that I used to paint with were literally leftover paint from like house projects. It just happened to be colors that my wife and I were a fan of and we wanted to paint our family room that totally, color. Totally, totally. Right? And so that, that, you know, that maroon that's in that piece right there is definitely a holdout of that kind of color scheme that used to be in our old house, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but so what I'll, from after, you know, after that whole thing of adding the texture to it and all that um, is when I start thinking more about the composition of the piece. And so, you know, in a case like that, like this one here, I said, all right, well, so I want to have this kind of groove, this embedded groove across the middle of the piece. Um, let me take it over to the workshop and I'll, I'll, run it through, you know, my table saw or my router and I'll cut a rabbit across it. Okay. So, so now I have that. And, you know, again, in my head, I know I have these sort of like these kinds of lines that I want to have vertically situated. So how can I create those? Um, well, I'm a big fan of hardware. I'm, I have a bit of a hoarding habit when it comes to objects like that, whether it's nuts and bolts or gears or, you know, pieces of metal or steel, um, or sometimes, but in, like in those cases here in this particular piece, it's, you know, it's going shopping at Home Depot and getting tie straps that are used in construction and using that as my material to add that, the sort of the vertical nature of those lines there. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes it's just a game of arranging them on the surface. I do tend to like symmetry. So a lot of the things, especially lately are fairly symmetrical. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's like kind of like, what's the time of day and how am I feeling that day? This one wanted to be, you know, have those blue tints to it and the, and the yellows and stuff like that. Other times doesn't want that. It wants to be just sort of this beige or off white color. Um, you know, so color is kind of random in nature when it comes to actually creating the work and that, and that part of the process, um, you know, I try to stick with a, a few colors for a particular piece, but then it can, rev, it can, it can vary to the next piece, for example. Um, you know, and then, you know, okay, so once I've got that, I've got the composition down, I've got those things down, I know I'm going to screw them in, I've got paint on the surface already. I, then I, you know, at that point, it's like, all right, so I know I need to start, like, weathering this thing, right? So how do I do totally. that? There's... So I take a, a palm sander to the surface. I start standing over top of all that plaster, that joint compound there. Um, and that's where you start exposing the, you know, you, you start ripping off like that layer of paint, exposing the raw joint compound behind it, for example, or whatever it might be. If maybe it's just another layer of paint that I've added behind that. And, um, you know, once you get that, you know, and I'm pretty happy with that, what I have. Um, one, of the f one of the last things that I do almost in every single situation is I completely cover the surface. It's, I mean, the entire thing in a coat of roofing tar. Okay. It's black. Like it's literally like coated in this black crap. Right. And what happens is the, the staining effect of the oil and the tar 
ends up staining all those exposed areas of, of like the joint compound that I sanded down. It starts filling into the crevices of what's left from the, the textures that I've created. You know, it starts filling it and making its way into sort of like around the circumference of the screws that you see there. And you end up with the sort of like automatic like weathering effect because I start wiping away all that excess material all that excess tar and you're just left with that the staining effect of it yeah and that's what that's how i end up getting a lot of that those those colorations around the corners and the edges um and then you can you can play with it a little bit more too because so i use mineral spirits to thin the tar and when you start throwing some mineral spirits onto the surface the mineral spirits has this effect of like spreading the stain of the, the tar and you end up getting these like cool little things happening in like the upper left corner of that piece where you start seeing, it almost looks like droplets and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I kind of, I start doing that on purpose where, you know, you just sort of dip a brush in the paint thinner, the mineral spirits, and you just sort of splatter it onto the surface and it just will randomly in those spots just sort of spread the thing to spread the, the tar, the staining of the tar. Um, and then, you know, from there, it's, a, it's, it's more, okay, so trying to fine-tune it. Like, okay, so, you know, uh, are there elements of the hardware that need a little highlighting? So I, I'll, I have a, a bunch of oil sticks that I love using, and I'll use some oil sticks and start maybe putting some, you know, white highlights on some of the elements or red or whatever the color might be. Maybe some extra blue in the areas where there's more blue um, and just kind of working that. But then that's that's really it. I mean, that ends up building up that that you know those layers and stuff. Very lastly, I just, I typically put a layer of polyurethane over top of the piece. Mm. Um, sometimes I'll just spray it on um, if it's a smaller uh, smaller surface. Other times I'll just brush it on, and that has a whole effect too, because the the yellowing effect just ends up sort of popping the color totally. Um, and then obviously you know protecting the surface itself. Now there's there's stages in that because there's obviously there's time necessary for layers to dry, right? There's I, I need to let the um the roofing tar staining dry, right? So I always have like a I have my windows open in my basement, I'm always getting the air circulation and get the fan going so I can get, you know, a breeze across the pieces to just kind of speed that process up. Or in some cases, like if I'm being impatient, I'll just use my heat gun and I'll dry the surface that way. Wow. And after all that labor, you're left with something that unmistakably looks like a Dom Nacarado. <laughs> and you have such a strong voice and, <laughs> and you'd know a Dom <laughs> if you've seen one. Uh, does this piece have a name? It does. Uh, yeah. So wait, let me look it up real quick. Well, while you're looking that up, one of the things that we love to do on the show is audio description of the okay. pieces. I, w I would love it if you could describe for the audience the piece as you see it. Wow, okay. <laughs> All right, so this one's called Four 12-Gauge Strap Ties Across a Textured Surface. It's 23 and a half inches by 23 and a half inches square. Uh, the mediums uh, that I've used for this piece are strap ties, screws, washers, wire mesh, latex paint, oil stick, roofing tar, and polyurethane on a plywood surface. Uh, the piece has a uh, sort of primarily blue and and yellowish um, tint to it. Uh, it has these four 
tie straps that are vertically aligned in the center of the piece. Um, the tie straps themselves have a sort of a weathered maroon finish to them. The screws that are used to adhere them to the surface, they're sort of actually, um, they're highlighted by the light in this room, which is kind of cool. Um, so they have, you know, they have, um, they have elements of, of some paint and oil stick and, and whatnot um, sort of embedded in there in the little hashes there of the, the screw heads. Um, those vertical tie straps uh, run across a, uh, a horizontal rabbit that goes from one end of the piece to the right. Um, embedded in there is a, is a wire mesh um, adhered to it to with two screws on either end behind the tie straps sort of encompassing each one of them is a sort of a a swipe of sort of whitish color uh, hue paint um, clearly stained by the roofing tar that's across the whole surface the surface itself is is very well looks very weathered and worn um, elements of it as you can see sort of have been sanded through um, and with the, the roofing tar staining all those elements, um, just creating different sort of little vignettes of, of color and texture and, and, and surface area um, that encompass the whole piece. I don't know if I did a good job explaining that. but You killed it. I think that was great. That was amazing. When you, when you see this piece right now, is there a specific part of it that calls out to you the most? It's so there's something about that wire mesh in the middle of it. It's almost like you know, it's almost like there's something back there just kind of holding it together. Totally, you know, holding the two halves together. Even though I, you know, now clearly, you know, it's a solid surface, but it sort of goes back to that idea of just like finding these interesting things and 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 seeing, you know, what you ever like you ever go, you know, you ever see a Jersey barrier on the side of the highway. And like it's yeah. sort of the, the concrete, you know, clearly it's so old, the concrete's deteriorating and you see the rebar inside of it. Sure. Totally. That, that's the kind of thing that, you know, is in the sort of the back of my head when I'm creating something like that. Oh, yeah. cool. You know. But, is that a part of the joy to you, almost the fictional structure? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, for I mean, there's there's definitely something about the hardware itself that I'm drawn to. I mean, I've always, you know, I'm, I'm pretty handy. I, I, I love tools. I love building things. And so I'm very comfortable with hardware, right, in general. Um, but then I'm also, I'm really interested in, like, aspects of construction and, and, and that sort of thing. So, and the process behind, you know, what does it take to create a jersey barrier, right? Pouring the concrete, mixing it, making sure that the rebar is formed correctly, pouring it into the form, et cetera, right? But then what happens 25 years later, right? What happens to the, the sort of deterioration of that concrete 25 years later after all the abuse of it being thrown into the center highway during a construction site, you know, being dragged around by a, a front-end loader or whatever to be placed somewhere? Um, you know, what's the story behind that thing, right, that element? And why did, why did it get marked with the number six? <laughs> you know? Totally. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I just those things are kind of interesting to me, you know? Yeah. And so, like, all anytime I'm, I'm creating a piece like that, it's this sort of thing that's sort of in the back of my head, you know. And again, I'm not I'm not necessarily trying to replicate that. Sure, it's, just, it's the elements sure. of that thing, that object, or that little vignette, or the side of the train car that I've noticed that I sort of keep in the back of my head when I'm creating these things. 
Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think that's incredibly relatable as well. It pushes people to see a piece like yours, appreciate the detail that went into it, and then look around themselves and say, oh my goodness, there's a level of detail in everything around me yeah. that I may not have noticed in the past. Yeah, whether it's accidental or purposeful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, To that to that point, do you also maybe hope that uh, <laughs> a viewer might also appreciate the constructedness and the madeness of our built environments? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, <laughs> I guess I ask that because it's almost the inverse of something I often think when I look at your works, which is that um, these things don't look like they had recent human intervention. <laughs> and I guess that's the goal of, of weathering something, right? I, it, yeah. I mean, I've joked before that there are some times where I, there are times where I'm like, I've tried to create the piece in such a way that I made it look like I took a sawzall to the back of the train car, cut it out and framed it. Right. Totally. And, 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 and so the aspect of it, of the surface itself, appearing as if I found it like that, that's definitely intriguing. You know, there's, if you, if you look through sort of my, the collection of work that I've had now over the past, say, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years, there are pieces that are, that stick out in my head that, that are very much like that. Right. There's a piece, I have a, I have a piece hanging in at the Rotunda Gallery right now in in the art narrative show that's up there. And there's a piece that's, that's sort of that, you know, that it takes its cues from like the side of a dumpster, right? Mm-hmm. It's got the lettering that's all weather. In fact, it's on steel, like the surface itself is steel. And so I purposely rusted it, right? I added, I had these giant hunker of a set of bolts that I just, I screwed into it, you know, um, to make it almost appear like, wait, is that, is that art? Did, did he make that or did he just find that somewhere? And there's there's a certain aspect to that that's kind of fun, right? And there's only been a handful of pieces I've created over the years that are that are of that nature, but it's always fun talking to someone, talking to them about the piece, talking about the process, and then it dawns on them that wait a minute, I didn't just pick that out of the trash. Like I made it look like that. Totally. You know, that's kind of that's that's an interesting sort of perspective too. Yeah, definitely. It's like you see Hollywood films, right? And period pieces. You're like, wow, those are brand new costumes that they have an entire weathering department brought on to make them look that way. Oh, yeah. And you don't even think about it. You're like, that's the way that it's always been. It's like, no, actually, it existed in that state. It's brand new, but looks that way now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that stuff. Who's the dude from, uh, from Mythbusters? Oh, oh, yeah. uh, Adam Savage. Yeah. yeah. So if you ever watch some of his videos and some of the things that he creates totally. in the costumes, he has some amazing weathering techniques that oh, he yeah. applies to his objects. Oh, yeah. That I, I just find amazing, right? How you can create something like that brand new, but make it look like it's been sitting around for the past 40 years. Totally. That's awesome. Yeah. But in your work, it's not just a a roughly applied patina of some kind, right? It's, it's all super deliberate and you can tell when you've seen lots of your work because there's a consistency. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. There's definitely consistency to it. Um, and there's, there's typically always a deliberate nature to 
especially the compositions. There's a lot of things that I can't control when it comes to the way that the tar, for example, stains the surface. Um, when I, when I'm in that particular step of the process and I wipe away all that excess tar, it's almost like this unveiling that happens. And I don't always know what I'm going to get. And actually, I mean, 99% of the time, I don't quite know what I'm going to get. I, you know, I have an idea, right? I know because I, you know, I stand at that top right corner. I'm going to get more staining effect there than like on the white where I didn't touch it. Totally. Right? Um, I get that. But then otherwise, it's kind of, it's kind of this sort of like, I don't know, this sort of this, um, this, this, this game really where, you know, you're doing all this stuff, you get to this point where I'm saying, okay, now just cover it, cover it in darkness. Uh-huh. And, and now, and now let me, let me sort of bring it back into the light. Let me expose it and let me see really for the first time what it's going to end up being. Hmm. And most of the time that works. And, you know, so, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> totally. Sometimes it does. Sometimes you end up with a hot mess. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of have to figure out a way to fix that or clean it up or just scrap it and <laughs> start over. Yeah. You know. Do you scrap many? No. No. <laughs> but I have, paint, I, have, I have painted over things mm. where, you know, there is, there's something I'm, uh, that I just never was quite happy with. So it sort of just sits there on my, you know, painting rack. And then four years later, when I'm in need of a new surface, I see that and I'm like, yeah, it's time to paint over that thing. <laughs> you know, sand it down and just start over. Totally. I've done that a number of times with older work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they'll be looking through an x-ray someday and <laughs> uncovering the layers, the archaeology of guess, down. I guess so, yeah. I've uh, been using the word painting, and I'm trying to remember if you have too. Do you consider these paintings? I, most of the times I do, yeah. Yeah. It, it's uh, So... They've been called assemblage art. Um, they've been called paintings. They've been called sculptural paintings. But I think painting is a good kind of catch-all, mm-hmm. you know, to describe it. Yeah. What makes something a painting? Is that kind of taxonomy even important to you? No. No, because, you know, I, I, I have, I've done a number of things that uh, you, you could argue are definitely much more sculptural in nature. Um, you know, some kind of wall hanging, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, that are definitely not painting, you know. But I don't know. I don't know if painting, if, if something needs to be painterly and to have a painterly sort of process to it in order to be considered a painting. Um, I call that a painting because I did apply paint to it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh-huh. You know, it definitely has some paint to it, right? Um, I, would I call that a painting if there was absolutely no paint on it? Uh, probably not. Interesting. You know, when you're, when you're taking inspiration from these vignettes that you've mentioned that are all around in life, will you often take a picture of them or are they the kind of thing that you kind of think about and then just kind of internalize and think about when you're, when you are creating? I, I used to take a lot more pictures of those things, um, I, I haven't recently. I probably only because there's just a plethora of that in the palm of my hand and sure. my phone, right? 
Um, but yeah, there were, there were definitely times where like, I'd be driving down the highway and I'd be stuck behind a truck and I'd start like, I see something and then I go fumble for my phone to try to take a quick picture of it or a reference shot or something like that. Totally. So I have a, I have a go, uh, an older, uh, Google photos album that has a bunch of those kinds of reference shots. Um, but no, I think I, but for the most part, for the most part, it's just the kinds of things that are sort of the, the thoughts in the back of my head, um, you know, that, that are just that are sort of just there um that i think some of the pieces sort of take their cues from you know when you see those things do you almost are you are you planning your recreation your your approach to emulating textures i think it's just yeah i think a lot of it is just about the texture and and you know maybe like again say if if i'm adding a number to a piece or something like that and i happen to notice you know, a number on the back of a truck or whatever it might be where, you know, an element of it, part of it is just sort of scraped off or cut off or, you know, whatever. Those are the kinds of things where I'm like, okay, I, you know, I'm going to try to figure out how to, how to replicate that aspect of it. Totally. Um, but, you know, in terms of the compositions themselves, it's a real random thing that just sort of ends up happening. You know, I'll go through times where these kinds of things just sort of pop into my head you know, the, this, like the symmetry of those four things across the surface and the, you know, across the, the, the horizontal grid like that, like that, the composition itself is what appears in my head, Mm. right? The lines, Mm -hmm. right? And the shapes, not necessarily the, not necessarily the sort of the surface or the textures or even the colors. Um, I mean, I, I keep, I keep a tiny little sketchbook, um, that, I, I've probably had it for like 10 years. I mean, because I don't, I don't use it all that often, but, um, every once in a while, if, if I have it with me, you know, I know, you know, we go on a family vacation and I'm sitting at the beach or something like that. And something pops in my head. I just jot down like a really quick, you know, sort of back of the napkin type of sketch in it. And it's primarily all about the sort of the composition of that thing, whatever, whatever it might be that sort of just I envisioned. And then I use those as references when I'm, you know, I'm like, okay, now I'm in my studio and like, all right, I got the hunkering, right? You have that, there's something in you as an artist, you'd like, you need to create. So it's like, okay, what do I create? And I go back to that and I say, okay, let me take a look at this composition and let me see if I can bring that to life with whatever I have. And I've got, you know, I've got a stockpile of these brackets and I've got all this like wire mesh and all this stuff. And, oh yeah, I've got a few sheets of plywood. So let me just, let me see, you know, what happens when I cut these things up and put them together. Um, that's kind of how these things sort of come to life. Hmm. And, and so those things like the surfaces, the vignettes and whatnot that I come across, those are sort of just the extra elements that I'm like, okay, how do I bring those things that I really love, that I really dig into the surface of that particular composition. Totally. You know, um, and I mean, even those, the, the recent series with the number word vignettes, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, you know, I, like I said earlier, I started those things in Photoshop, but it was, you know, it was a very rough sketch of just the sort of the, the composition of the number and the word and all that stuff. And then, okay, so I take that composition, put it to life, bring it to life on the surface, but then, you know, then I go to town on it. Right. And, and the going to town is sort of just, it's almost like playing, right? You're just sort of experimenting, going back to the nature of like just sort of seeing what happens if, you know, what happens if I mix oil 
and latex and okay i know that's not good but like what what really is going to happen if i do that right how can totally. i make the paint crack off maybe or you know or if i sand it too much like what happens if i sand it too much you know yeah that's the kind of thing that, that starts happening yeah that's great so you've told us about you know your creative mind when you're out on safari looking at the world <laughs> and uh, your creative mind as you're working through that process. But I, I'd also love to hear about now as you start to talk about experimentation, uh, how you've kind of built your uh, your studio, your studio and your space to facilitate that kind of working. So um, so I have about, I don't know, I think it's like it's like an 800 square foot basement, something like that, maybe a little little shy of that. And I, I sort of have it split in two. I have a wall between the two sides where I have more of like what you would most like tradition, like it's, it looks like a traditional workshop, like a wood shop on the one side. And I've got that walled off so I can close the door so I can make dust on that side. The other side is sort of like more of the studio side, if you will, where, or the clean side. Um, I have a big workbench there. I typically work flat and that's where most of the the surfaces come to life on that side. I also have my home office there. So, you know, I, I got to keep things kind of clean on that side. But there is a lot of sort of back and forth that I do between these two spaces, right? Where like the piece that we keep describing here tonight, um, a lot of that I've got to bring into the workshop so I can, you know, I can bring, I can bring it through the, the router table, for example, to route that that rabbit through the middle of it. Um, totally. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm sanding the surface, I like to do that on the workshop side because I know it's going to be a mess and I got to wear a dust mask and all that stuff. Um, whereas on the other side, the clean side is where I'm doing the painting, you know, where I'm, um, I'm fooling around with the, the, the surface and making my marks and all that good stuff. Um, so there's a lot of like sort of back and forth, you know, between those two spaces. Um, I typically have, I have a bunch of workbenches. So most of the time I work flat on the surface. So I have all my, you know, all the materials and all that junk. And then the surface itself is, is, is flat on the workbench. Um, I'll throw it up on the easel every once in a while to kind of be able to take a step back from it and, and see how it's sort of coming together. Or, you know, if I'm in early stages, maybe, maybe it's something as simple as like just kind of holding one of the brackets up on the, on the thing and sort of like positioning and seeing like where I think it might make sense. And sometimes that is easier if I put it on the easel, but I don't, I don't typically work off of the easel, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, having, having the, having the shop and the studio sort of combined like that, it's the kind of thing where, again, it's like, I go back to my days in school, like. I, I always found myself painting in the sculpture studios and building things there and stuff like that, where I rarely hung out in the painting studios painting, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and I always like, you know, I, again, I always like that, the notion of like needing to use power tools to make my art. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, kind of having a workshop handy and, and all that stuff, um, just sort of makes sense for what I do. Sure. I'm going to go uh, psychoanalytic on you and ask if you're trying to recapture a bit of your dad building your first drawing table. Probably, man. <laughs> my dad, you know, my dad's a handy guy. Like, you know, I, growing up, 
I, you know, I always saw him doing things, fixing things, whatever. Um, you know, my uncle's a contractor and, you know, he, he, you know, my high school summer jobs were, you know, putting roofs on houses and digging trenches along foundations. Like, so I was very comfortable around that kind of thing. Um, and so I, you know, it just, it sort of makes sense bringing that into my work. Totally. You know, and, uh, it just, it's very fitting if you will. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the aesthetic inspiration and I'd love to know what the emotional core of your work is or what you would consider the emotional core of your work. Oh, you're getting deep on me now. Man. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, bound to happen at some point. <laughs> at, its, at its core, it's my desire to make art and create things. I, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I, I think I've heard some of the other folks that you've interviewed talk about this. I mean, you know, as an artist, and you know this probably too, you, as an artist, you, you have this sort of burning desire to create. Like you're not whole unless you're creating art. Hmm. Whether that's a, you know, a drawing in a sketchbook or a, a print or a giant mural on the side of a building in Easton somewhere. Yeah. Right? You've got this burning desire to create and make art and, you know, do something like that. And that's... For me, that's that's all it's about. I don't feel like I'm myself when I haven't created something, you know? Totally. When you are creating something, when do you know it's done? When do you know that you've reached the, the final stages and the, the end of a piece? So I, I think, in, you know, in, in my world, because so much of the creation process is very... Um, there's, there's almost like a methodical step-by-step -step nature to some of the stuff that I create. Mm. Um, at least, you know, the way I've sort of laid it out in my head. Yeah. That, you know, I, you can, I don't know, in some ways, like, I can tell, like, when I'm saying, like, I'm getting to a point where, you know, as, all right, so as an example, you can't, I can't add a layer of roofing tar over top of the surface until I'm pretty confident that all my painting and the coloring and all that is done. Okay. Right? Because I can't, unless I'm going to throw more oil paint over top of the surface, sure. which I, I don't always use. I typically use like latex house paint. Um, I can't put oil over top of that latex and then put more latex over top of that oil. It's just yeah. not going to work. Yeah, probably, it won't right? work. Um, so I have to be pretty confident at that point that I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. And then you just, you sort of, I think as any, as any artist who's been doing this for a long time will tell you, you know, you get to a point where you can kind of feel it and you see it, you know, and the composition has, has spoken to you enough that, you know, you're ready to move on to the next step. And totally. maybe that next step is completion or maybe that next step is just adding some other accoutrement to it. Yeah. But it has to talk to you and you have to be able to have that kind of conversation with the piece. It sounds kind of kitschy, but you know, you have, you have to let the piece talk to you, right? Well, I got to tell yeah, you, you're I'm, nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly. But also I'm a little bit jealous of you that you can say things like, I don't know how that color kind of happened or, or why those colors, the piece just kind of spoke to me, just like you're saying now, right? The speech <laughs> just kind of needed it. The, the piece wanted it, uh, because, uh, you know, not everyone, uh, it doesn't come that naturally for people where they know what the piece needs that way. Uh, maybe it's, maybe you're a good listener. <laughs> maybe it's a dance. I, I like, I, you know, you, you have to equate it. Like you, you're having this sort of dance with the piece, right? 
and you're, you're having a conversation with it. I don't know what, pick, pick your analogy, right? You're having this conversation with the piece and you got to be able to listen and you got to be able to talk and you be like, no, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to do this instead. And, and then take it that direction and see what happens. I think you also have to be willing to fail, you know? Um, and I've definitely failed a lot over the years with, with the pieces where, you know, I've, I have some sort of crazy idea and I try to execute it and it's just a, just a bomb, you know, but I think you have to be accepting of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. So then I'm curious if you're the kind of person who's very, uh, intensely in the moment focused on the particular paintings that are present in your studio or if you're someone like so many artists who kind of develops an idea debt where you've kind of got a backlog of all kinds of ideas you want to execute, or maybe in your case, all kinds of materials you can't wait to get into a piece. I, uh, so I don't have, I don't have that much of a backlog of ideas. Okay. Um, you know, that sketchbook I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I've got a few things in there that, um, I haven't touched yet that, you know, you know, one of these days it'll be cool to create something based on that thing or whatever that sketch or whatever it might be but there's not a huge volume of that mm. um most of the stuff that i work on it's interesting because i do tend to work a lot in series um you know those number word vignettes i've been working on now for the past i don't know probably start of the pandemic right so maybe a little over a year and a half now or so um and that series is just about like run its course Okay. Right. You're feeling that way. Yeah. Yeah. You do. You get to a point where you're just sort of like kind of done with that. Hmm. Right. And so, you know, sometimes, frankly, you just get bored of it. Sure. Right. Um, but again, it's the kind of thing where you have to sort of have that conversation with, with the work and with yourself. Like, is this done? Right. Or do I have, do I have maybe, maybe I have more in me. Um, these kinds of things here, I find myself sort of going in and out of these, these, these paintings that have all these different objects and whatnot, mm -hmm. um, you know, where I, you know, I may work on a series that has, you know, a bunch of hogs or gears in them or something. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, maybe I don't touch those for a few years and instead I start using the more flat pieces of hardware, like the tie straps or something. Um, that wire mesh stuff, I started using this over the past year or so. And that wire mesh has been, making its way into a handful of the pieces lately too. So some of it is about experimenting with new materials too. And I think, I, I think in some part too, you just, you get to a point where like the, you know, you sort of just kind of done with, with it. Mm -hmm. um, and there'll be times where like, you know, maybe a month, maybe two months goes by and I haven't created a single thing. And that's where that sort of that, like, that burning desire starts creeping in, mm, creeping I back in, get and, that. you know, and, and, and you're just like, okay, wait a minute. No, like I haven't created any, I haven't produced anything in a while. I, I need to refocus my efforts and, and totally. start doing stuff. Totally. But the, the other thing too is like time, right? Like I, I have a full-time job and I have a, you know, family, I've got kids in high school, sports activities and you know, there's a lot of other things going on in life in sure. general. And so I tend to work in sprints on my work. Mm. Um, it's rare that I can get like, you know, can maybe, maybe on a Saturday I can get like a few hours, four or five hours at a time after mow the lawn and taking care of everything else. And there's nothing else going on. Um, but 
things like, you know, working at night, for example, right? You got a long day, worked all day long. You're doing, maybe you got a, you know, a soccer game. I got to go to the end of the night and watch my kid play her sport. And that's all great. You come home, you're like, all right, so I have, I have two extra hours here. So let me see what I can just work on on a particular piece in two hours. And I've gotten very used to, very accustomed to working on in on my projects and my pieces in sprints, right? So, yeah. I, and I can't even tell you like how long it would take for a full piece to go from start to finish because I don't, I, I can't keep track of it, right? Like I don't, I don't know what it's like to be in the studio for say, you know, three, four days straight, just working on stuff like that doesn't, sure. you know, sure. I don't, that's foreign to me. You know, sure. I work on it in between life, if you will. Yeah. Right. You know, that's always a funny question. when someone asks you how long something took, it sounds like in your case, it might be, you mean how many meals? <laughs> yeah. How like, many, I can right. log that and how many meals I, I made for my family. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just sort of doing it in between things, but that's just, that's the, that's my experience. I mean, that's, you know, that's not everybody else's experience. You know, you have your sort of sure. work ethic and your studio life and that's mm-hmm. going to be completely different than what mine looks like. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's, for me, it's what works, right? Totally. It's, it's that, I always said, I, you know, again, go back to school. Um, I, I said to one of my professors once that I wanted to be an artist and have a family and have a job at the same time. And he was like, good luck with that, right? Because it's not easy. It's definitely not been easy, hmm. you know? Totally. Um, but, you know, you just you just sort of make it happen, right? You want to have a... You know, you want to have a good life. You want to have a good job. Totally. You want to have, you know, a great family. You want to be able to provide for them. You want to be able to make them dinners at night. And you want to be this artist. You know, there's, you know, you want to show. You want to talk to cool guys like you. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, want to, you want all this stuff, right? And you being me, I, I want all this stuff. Sure. And so you've got to figure out how to balance mm. it all, right? But... That's part of the game too, man. Totally. Yeah, I was I was going to ask whether you would consider that part of your process. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be. I think I've learned how to do that too. I mean, I I mentioned like the heat gun, like the heat gun is has, has been my best friend at times sure. because I can dry something really quick, like uh, you know, when it comes to like a latex paint or something like that, you can dry something really quick and be able to move on to the next step or whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, otherwise, like if I had to wait, you know, if I had to wait, you know, any sort of length of time, it's like, all right, well, I just have to do it and I just have to wait. Sure. But sometimes I'll like, I'll do that where I'll like, I plan out my day that way or I'll plan out like a piece or something. I mean, I wake up real early in the morning and before work, if I have some time, like I'll throw on like a layer of, of joint compound onto the surface because I know that that needs at least 24 hours to dry before I can, you know, prime it again. So if I have an extra, you know, half hour before I have to actually start my day, then yeah, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to do that. Right. Totally. But that's also the benefit of having a studio in your own home. Right. You can, you can kind of do things in between. I think a lot of people think, oh, you have your studio in your own home. That's great because then you can spend hours upon hours upon hours in your own studio. But you really can't do that with, this whole other thing called life around sure. you, you know? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, 
I just, I love that discussion of, um, of balancing it all. I want to know if you sleep. <laughs> so I, I actually sleep more now than I used to. Um, I used to find myself working really late into the hours and the night. Um, but as I've gotten older, my body cannot handle that. <laughs> so I need, I need my, you know, my seven, eight hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways, I think that actually has forced me to figure out how to work in between other things, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, sleep is important. Yeah. yeah. You have to sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that, um, uh, it, it sounds like you really shifted your studio practice to, uh, to fit the intensities of life and the practicalities of time limitations. Um, and it sounds like it's made you, you describe them as sprints. It sounds like it, it's brought an intensity to the way that you approach the projects you can do when you are in the studio. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has. Yeah. I think it has. You've mentioned, um, that you don't have the the luxury of going into the studio three, four days in a row. If you had the ability to, is that something that you would do or is that something you wouldn't necessarily be interested in? Oh yeah. Oh no, I, I would, I would definitely, yeah. if I had the means and the ability, that is something that, um, I think eventually I think I'll get there for okay. sure. Um, but you know, as I said, right now it's, a, it's sort of a different time, right? I could see myself maybe having a studio in perhaps like outside of my, my home. You mm-hmm. know, I know, right. You're well, you're not at the banana factory, right? I am. You, now, oh, yes. you are, you are. So yeah, yeah. So, so that's a perfect example, right? So you leave your home almost like you're going to work in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. And you go to your studio and yeah. you do your studio time, right? You told me earlier, you're a full-time artist now, yeah, right? So that's the kind of thing that I think any artist would, would strive for, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely something that I've always sort of envisioned, like, okay, yeah, eventually I, that's the kind of thing that sure. I, I'd love to be able to get sure. to. Mm-hmm. Um, but first I have to figure out how to pay for my kid's college of course. to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> When it comes to marketing your work and posting on social media, what percentage of time does that take up for you? I mean, I'll say this: I, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm all that great at social media and promoting myself on something like Instagram, for example. I try, and I definitely put effort into it. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that those things are those platforms are always changing. And when oh, you look totally. at the emphasis that. Instagram is now putting on video, for example, in these, these reels, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at, uh, you know, basically competing against TikTok. Um, you know, you say, okay, all right, how do I, how do I take that and bring that into the fold, right? Put that into the studio and turn, some, turn that into something that potentially is a, a way to market my work, right? Because ultimately that at the end of the day, that's what it's going to be as a tool for, right? It's to help us as artists market ourselves. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and what I have found, what I have found to be most interesting and the most enjoyable, I'll say, is, is when I do these videos on like my process, right? Because in a way it's, it's me being able to sort of show like how it is that I, I produce these things. Um, I, you know, I do enjoy sort of the aspect of, you know, setting up the camera, putting it on a tripod and then just, you know, getting B-roll and shooting that and then stitching it all together or premiere totally. or whatever. Totally. Maybe doing a voiceover these days, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just seeing what happens. Um, but then you have like, so you have the real thing or you have the TikTok thing and you got like 30 seconds. 
to do that. Yeah. And you're like, well, how am I supposed to do all that in 30 seconds? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, totally. Yeah. So like the past couple of videos that I've put out there really have just been these, this little sort of like detailed vignettes of the piece, right? Where maybe I take a picture of the piece after I've completed it, post it on my main, what do you call it? Your main feed, right? Yeah. Of your Instagram. Yeah. And then I'll do a 30 second video of like uh, sort of the details of the piece going through it and then put that on the sort of the real section. But I don't know. I don't know if that's even working, frankly, you know, and yeah. you, you, you it's know, a game. it is, it is kind of a game. And, yeah. and, you know, as a video guy yourself, like, totally. you know, like it, it, you know, when you start doing video, it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And, and, and from my perspective is the time that I put into trying to edit some silly video that someone's going to see for maybe 30 seconds, maybe. Right. Right. It's a blink of an eye. It's a swipe of a finger. Um, the amount of time that it takes to actually do that and set up the tripod and do, you know, it, you want to make it interesting. So you got to get a couple different angles and, you know, I've seen your videos. I, I, yeah. I know you're trying to do the same thing. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's challenging and it's in a way it's, it impedes your process. Oh yeah. Well, because the artifice is all very silly too, because all right, I'm going to go set up the tripod, walk over here, act like I was doing what I was doing. No, it's do a small fragment of it. No, it's insane. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, I mean, you, we're like, we're truly, we're crazy Yeah. when we do stuff like that. Right. For what? Yeah. For the, for, for a handful of extra likes to try to build, build up a, a, you know, a following because everybody happens to say that it's like the, you know, the panacea of like your marketing tool, right? Totally. It's throwing your work on Instagram. Totally. So it, it's, you know, it's the kind of like, you know, what do they call it? It's like a necessary evil. Yeah. It's in a way that's what, that's what all that social media stuff is for artists. Totally. Sure. Totally. I am. Gosh, I'm a video guy that has not, on my own personal pages, made a single reel because I know how much of a perfectionist I am and I know how much time I'll put into something like that. And it takes a lot of courage for me to do something like that. And I I don't know if I have it in me at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, yeah. And, you know, you really got to keep discipline to not let that become the yeah. art object instead totally. of the thing that you're yeah. trying to exactly. well, unless that's what you want i mean unless that's you know there's you a lot yeah. of there's a lot of guys doing that you know that sort of thing and yeah making it very interesting you know but yeah. if it's if you're more of i mean i'm not gonna call myself a traditional artist but if you're more of a traditional artist mm -hmm. then yeah that kind of thing can get in your way frankly yeah yeah you know? until that one shining person comes through and gives <laughs> you that authentic you know connection comment that right. kind of <laughs> makes you feel validated for your work yeah yeah totally ironically enough i don't enjoy talking about my work <laughs> is that true <laughs> no that's totally true you know uh, wow can you tell us about that <laughs> I, 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 mean, I don't what do you want to know well i think that that's really interesting i i actually i kind of think and I'm not putting this on you. You tell me if this is true of you, but I think that it's true of some artists that they got into this visual medium sometimes because they didn't want to put their feelings, thoughts, whatever ideas into words. And then very often artists have to end up putting it back into words at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it very honoring? Yeah. I mean, you know, Ben, you asked me for a bio and artist statement. I'm yeah. Like, oh, crap. All right, let me let me dig that up somewhere on my Google Docs and <laughs> and see what I can throw together and make yeah. and make it current, yeah. right? Because it's not current uh, ever. Yeah, um, I get that. No, it's just it's one of those things where I think it's a I think it's a learned trait. I think you have to figure out along the way how to be able to talk about your work 
um, I, I, simply as a way of being able to communicate it and, and be able to, if you want to be able to, you know, talk to a patron, talk to a collector about your work and, um, I, you know, sort of get, get that out there, you have to talk, right? And you have to be able to talk about it. I don't think I talk about my work well, frankly. Maybe you, you might disagree, I don't know, but I... I've never enjoyed talking about my work. So interesting. I never. think I do disagree. Yeah. You know, I caught you at, um, when you had that solo show at the bomb school of art in Allentown. Yeah. Oh my God. That artist talk. talk? Yeah. That was unnerving. <laughs> I thought you did great. Thank you. Yeah. I put on a, I put on a good game face. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was virtually other than like seeing a piece or two around, that was my introduction to your work. And oh, wow, okay. I thought you illuminated it for oh, me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I, I guess you never time. know, right? Yeah, I guess. I, you know, I, I don't know. You always, you know, you look at yourself and, and you, you know, you never really, I don't know, you never really see yourself the way other people see you, if that makes sense. So it's the same thing with when it comes to talking about your work. I had prepared a question about what your least favorite part of it all was for you, of your process I was going to target. But I, um, I want to know as an art maker, is that kind of your least favorite part of the whole cycle, talking about it? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that is the least favorite aspect of this whole of the whole thing is is knowing that, you know, at some point you're going to have to talk about your work. Or you're gonna have to write about your work. Sure, sure. Um, and and so so just to take a step back. So I think, in some ways, what I have learned over the years, as a as a means of sort of escaping that kind of torturous thing, I've gotten good, or I've gotten to enjoy talking about the process of making my work. Mm. Right. Um. Because I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, earlier, like I'm not, I don't have some sort of like special message that I'm trying sure. to convey. I don't sure. have this like deep seated thing going on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so talking about the process, talking about the materials, objects, yeah. the elements that makes it, when I focus on that, even in my, something like my artist statement, for example, totally. that makes it much easier to write about it and talk about it. So if you ever look at any of my artist statements over the years, and they've all, they've all evolved, they always talk about the process. Mm-hmm. It's just you know it's, it just makes it that much easier to discuss. Yeah, I think that a person can sense that that's your passion point there when you talk about that, and because it becomes very relatable, but also mm-hmm. because when you focus on process, your work has so many materials that. Um, are recognizable immediately that someone may have held mm. at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it, it's just an inroad to your work. And of course, I think that there is a lot of theory someone could map onto your work. I think it's rich work, but your work doesn't rely on the textuality either. So I mm-hmm. think that you're making work that suits your mindset towards <laughs> talking <funny>. about it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, Dom, if people want to see your work, check you out, follow you online, where can they do that at? Uh, so you can just search for my name, Dominic Nacarado, uh, uh, dominicnacarado.com, my website, and then that's my Instagram handle as well. Um, I post most of my most recent stuff directly on my Instagram feeds. Um, and I'm currently exhibiting at uh, Bethlehem uh, Rotunda Gallery um, in, in a curated show there. Uh, that's up until, I think, the first week of November. And then I think I already mentioned it, but I'm at uh, Cocktails of Collecting yeah. coming up next month as well at Allentown Art Museum. 
very exciting. Yeah. Good luck with that. And I'm so excited to go see the Rotunda show. That looks like a great show. Yeah, that was a good show. Yeah. yeah. It was cool over there. Well, thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. This has yeah. been awesome, guys. Thanks, Dom. Awesome. Take care. Don't miss the Allentown Art Museum's popular Cocktails and Collecting event, which this year has expanded to two days so that everyone gets a chance to participate. On Saturday night, November 6th, from 6 to 9 p.m., you can eat, drink, and be seen at the museum's major fall fundraising party, where 25 regional artists are on hand to talk about and sell their work, from painters and printmakers to fashion designers and sculptors. It's a night out in Allentown's downtown arts district that's unlike any other. Or stop by Sunday, November 7th from 11 to 4 to meet the artists, listen to the sounds of DJ Brad Scott, browse original works of art, and wander the galleries all free. Details at allentownartmuseum.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast, a Steel Pixel original series. Don't forget to like the podcast, leave us a review, and follow us on both social media and streaming services at Lehigh Valley Arts Podcast.